Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good. Well, welcome everyone to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Uh, TAH.org is the leading online resource for document-based study of American history, government, and civics, and for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, Associate Professor of Political Science and History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Uh, this year's webinar's theme is Presidents and Their Times, so for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, you'll see that the point of this uh, webinar is to pull together some thoughtful scholars uh, and have an interesting conversation about uh, 10 American presidents this year. So we also encourage everybody joining us to participate in the conversation by submitting questions in the chat box. And I see some people have already started doing that. That's fantastic. We'll try to get to as many of those as possible in the, in our, uh, in the course of our conversation. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation. Of course, to help us think about uh, the topics this year, we are drawing speeches, letters, other writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database at tah.org. You can type in teachingamericanhistory.org or just tah.org. Takes you to the same place. Today's subject is Lyndon Johnson on the Great Society in Vietnam. And to help us discuss President Johnson, we have with us uh, Will Addo and Kevin Porteous. Will Addo is Associate Professor of History at the University of Dallas. His specialties include United States history with an emphasis on 19th century America, as well as the American political, military, and intellectual history. Will has uh, taught courses in our master's program, including the Progressive Era and the American Way of War, among others. Kevin Porteous is Assistant Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College. His interests are in American political font, American political institutions. Um, he's, uh, he knows the Federalist Papers inside and out, probably sleeps with a copy under his pillow. <laughs> he's especially interested in the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln and the political font of American progressivism. And Kevin has also taught in our master's program. Uh, I believe you've taught uh, uh, the progressives. If I'm not no, mistaken. I haven't. It's actually, uh, sectionalism, oh, yeah, sectionalism and civil yep. war. That's yep. a good correction. Thank you. But anyway, welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. I'm just going to throw a big two-part question out there to start with, and you can either address one or both or neither parts of it. Conversation in any way you want. You, you are both experts on on this subject today. So, so my big sort of large two-part question is: uh, Should Johnson's presidency be remembered as a success or a failure? And related to that, uh, should he be remembered more for his domestic accomplishments, or should he be remembered more as a foreign policy president? So I'll let either of you start with wherever you want to start. <laughs> define success. Well, I'm hoping you'll define success. <laughs> well, uh, well I'll, I'll jump in if that's all right. Yeah, because, um, look, because Johnson is, you know, people like Johnson, people don't like Johnson's presidency. So, Right. I mean, it, I, I think it was... It was a success in so far as, as it was a uh, transformative uh, presidency, uh, in in the sense that the, uh, the the federal government committed itself, uh, following I mean, starting with the Great Society and ex and then expanding from there, 
Um, it, uh, uh, the nation committed itself to doing a whole raft of things that it had not done before. And those have become sort of, sort of central features of, uh, cent- central features of American political life and things like environmentalism, um, uh, occupational safety and health and, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, th- these are all substantial expansions of the regime that have had profound effect on, uh, on us, and even if they didn't, say, in the case of uh, occupational safety and health, come to fruition during Johnson's administration, I think they were a result of the, the new commitment that he initiated. So so in that sense, a success, although uh, I don't think that's cause for calling it universally a success. Yeah, um, I would uh, – you know, the, the thing about LBJ is, is that – and here I am in Texas where, of course, you know, some, sometimes you get looked at. I, I, I literally had a student one time whose name was Lyndon Baines Johnson, and uh, I never asked him if he appreciated our treatment of LBJ or not uh, one way or the other. But, but um, again, you know, if you look at LBJ as progressive and, – and, you know, students oftentimes are a little bit surprised when I include Johnson. When, you know, when I talk about progressive presidencies, I talk about – you know, I talk about LBJ. I say, look, you know – we got this biography, this series of vignettes by, for example, John Blum, the progressive presidents, and who, who's the who's the fourth president there? Well, it's Lyndon Johnson. If you if you're talking about Lyndon Johnson as capacity as progressive president, I think it would have to be adjudged um, a, a success, at least at least in as much as there's this welter of legislation. Um, you know, it's very much modeled clearly on New Deal thinking. He asked for the same kind of wartime. Um, uh, powers, if necessary, to engage this legislation, um, much the way FDR did at the start of the New Deal, um, and 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 he got obviously a great amount of that legislation, a huge welter of legislation. Um, you know, uh, now uh, you know on the on the other hand, and, and I think you know there's probably very little dissent on this side of things. If you're looking at Johnson in the context of foreign policy, specifically, of course, the Vietnam War, there's I think uh, unless uh, unless one is just sort of for whatever reason a diehard defender of Lyndon Johnson, and I, that, that may be poisoning the well a little bit here, it's hard to judge his performance in Vietnam uh, and, and as anything other than a failure. But of course, these two things are really inextricably bound up with one another, right? I mean, you know, Walter McDougall called foreign policy in Vietnam the analog to the uh, great society um, domestically. Uh, you know, obviously. And certainly I expect we're going to be talking about this, but this whole approach to trying to do both things at the same time is hugely problematic. And in it, I think, is sort of bound up for Johnson elements of success and and failure both. Yeah, that's very interesting. Will, can you just – you mentioned there were – that Johnson was the fourth president at the end of a series. So who were the other three? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The first one, of course, was Theodore Roosevelt uh, and then Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt okay, and then Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, and this was, you know, I mean, this, th- th- that book was written probably, I don't know, I want to say maybe in the uh, early 70s, uh, and, and no doubt, but but John Blum could probably have added to that list uh, since then. I mean, uh, you know, the the language, the claim on progressives is, um, you know, pretty pretty obvious. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. I mean, look at uh, even even and dare I say, in terms of some foreign policy, George <laughs> Bush the younger, uh, at, at least in terms of foreign policy, when he's sort of channeling some of Woodrow Wilson's ideas when he's staying in England and giving his speech in the context of the aftermath of 9/11 uh, and the war on terror. 
Wow. Okay. What about uh, so you're so you think uh, Will? You're arguing that Johnson, in many ways, is squarely in the camp of progressivism, mm -hmm. but but there are some significant differences, are there not, between the kind of progressivism Johnson represents in the earlier phases, or no? Well, in as much, I mean, I would say from you know from a stand from a philosophical standpoint, again, um, you know, the 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 desire, the ambition to engage in reform, you know, on behalf of various kinds of improvement, social improvement, restrictions on, um, uh, you know, uh, how shall I say, excess wealth, those kinds of things. Johnson may have put it, for example, in different terms than say Woodrow Wilson did, but he but he seemed to share very much in the same determination. Um, I, I suppose I'd probably even think more of Theodore Roosevelt in this respect. That, you know, there's legitimate wealth and there's ill-gotten wealth, and and America, as as the richest nation on the face of the planet, um, has to be able to do better with that excess wealth, and that, in in, in terms of the regulatory state, has to be gotten at, and it and it can be gotten at. Yeah, I, you see that. I, that's an interesting point, Will. You see that theme about the better, I mean, it, it, the ways in which we have got to use the wealth of the United States better, that theme just echoes throughout the Great Society speech, right? Where he talks about how we've got to enrich and elevate our national life. Um, trying to find some other places where he, where he sort of formulates this in a way. Um, uh, gosh, I'm just not seeing it jump out of me. <laughs> well, it's so a, it's an elevated about, rhetoric. Yeah, it's an elevated yeah, kind of yeah. rhetoric. I mean, he can speak language of sort of the, you know, the frontiers oh. of life in America. Go ahead, yeah. Chris, if you found it. But well, I just, I just, I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going, Will. Yeah. I found it. Yeah, I'll just say that his his rhetoric, you know, his 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 rhetoric is often enough very striking. I mean, at, at some point, regardless of one's essential point of view, it, it, you sort of feel yourself being wrapped in this mantle of, you know, the milk of human kindness. <laughs> you know, you want to do all these kinds of things, and there's all all these goals and ambitions and there's a place for everybody in it, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of either participating in it or benefiting from it. Um, and, and of course, the so out of, out of necessity, of course, the scope of what he's envisioning here, and and he was very much upfront about this. Of course, is is um, is massive. And and I don't think I mean, uh, uh, well, I'm not saying that you're arguing that what he's saying is merely rhetorical, but I think it's yeah. worth stressing that that. Uh, Johnson's rhetoric wasn't just rhetoric, and when I start to dig into these, uh, start to dig into these speeches, I think you start to see some some essential differences, or, or at least uh, an expansion of uh, progressivism or the New Deal, uh, because Johnson looks, I think, to do, to do a lot more. That is to say, some of what the New Deal or some of what the Great Society is about. Uh, housing assistance, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, th those types of things. That's very much sort of, sort of bread and butter economic security in the New Deal mold. And so this is very consistent with, with what Roosevelt was doing and what had been advocated and, and implemented for several decades during that sort of period of the New Deal consensus. But, you know, you look at some of the things that, that Johnson promotes uh, that, that are not really directly about economic security, like the National Endowment for the Arts or public broadcasting um, or, or, or uh, education and federal involvement in education, which has a connection to economic prosperity. But it's, it's really much more, I think, about cultural uplift. And even, but, and even when he's doing the economic stuff, if you look at the, the, the speech on, the, the, uh, on, on welfare reform and the sources of poverty, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal programs look to the amelioration of a condition. And Johnson, at least in his rhetoric, is saying we want to transform that condition. We want to, we don't want to relieve 
the burdens of poverty. We want to eliminate poverty. We want to put an end to something that has hitherto been a, part, a permanent part of the human condition. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you consider again the circumstances in which he's articulating this, I mean, if the it, to, to my mind, if the philo- philosophical principles are comparable, the mm-hmm. circumstances aren't. I mean, you know, Franklin Roosevelt or or or, or Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow right. Wilson, but, but right. particularly FDR. I mean, he's talking in the midst of formulating a plan in the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, right. th- these are not the circumstances in which Johnson is formulating the Great Society. He says over and over again, we basically right. we're a people of plenty. We have super abundance and 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 so we have um you know how shall i say uh, i think properly understood maybe say the leisure or some of us have the leisure right. to contemplate this kind of thing and of course you know in in terms of a civilizational sense no civilization can call itself great when it's living in the midst of that kind of abundance and yet not ultimately being shared more equitably across the board right um, yeah no i think you're absolutely right um, I think we have to remember that, and, and you point this out, this is at the kind of at the tail end of the post-war boom. Yep. And yep. I mean, compared to the re- especially compared to the rest of the world, right? We're the only nation that's not devastated, the only major player that's not devastated by World War II. Yeah. And so we've Absolutely. got this massive I mean, prosperity. The U.S. is a creditor nation here. I mean, you know, the if you talk about the, for example, the whole issue of the of the of the poverty rate. I mean, the poverty rate since 1950 has been um, pretty in a in a stable way, pretty consistently been declining, mm-hmm. approximately about a percent per year from, um, you know, from say about 1950 to I think probably two or three years after Johnson first gave the Great Society speech in the first place. So uh, again, um, you know, I think the rhetoric has to be different in terms of the appeal because the circumstances just simply aren't are not the same. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. It's also part of a larger. I mean. It's. I think it's part of a larger, almost an identity crisis for the country in the early 1960s as, as the New Deal consensus is starting to crumble, um, what, I, what I would call crumbling. You, you see the, the kind of identity crisis of, okay, no one, no society in human history has gotten to this point where a majority of its people are not engaged merely in surviving and not now what do we do? So things like the Port Huron Statement or right. John Kenneth Galbraith's The Affluent Society. I mean, how do we deal with this, in other words? Uh, what, what do we do with, with, our, with this situation that they believed had never been, had never been uh, approximated in human history? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. You're no, I was just no, I, I, no. You guys keep going. This is great. I was just going to throw in. I'm glad Kevin mentioned the Port Huron statement because you have that that sense of angst, uh, especially among the younger generation who look back and they say, you know, gosh, what does all of this mean? And uh, and they're dissatisfied with the extent to which they think that um, that democracy, as they understand it, has been has been sacrificed to bureaucracy in a sense. Um, uh, of course, you're in the middle of the Cold War, facing the constant threat of, uh, of nuclear annihilation. They look around, they see the civil rights uh, struggle, uh, you know, and the violence associated with that really sort of peaking in a way. So there is that widespread sort of social dissatisfaction or at least questioning of traditional um, what, what Americans have traditionally sort of taken for granted as our strengths. And I just wonder how much of, of uh, Johnson's call it rhetoric is meant to uh, respond to encounter some of that sort of um, sense of dissatisfaction among among Americans. Yeah, I think to a great extent it is, uh, Chris, and sort of as following on the lines of what Kevin said here. Um, 
you know, whatever else Johnson and Kennedy may have disagreed on, they both had read things like, you know, the other America. They both were aware of the, you know, the arguments out there about, how, you know, how do you have a nation that is as affluent as the U.S. is and yet has this, you know, the situation obtaining at the same time, sort of a, you know, we, we can do better than that. And Johnson, you know, um, and this is not in any way, shape, or form a criticism. It's just simply he, he understands, of course, in the relative immediate aftermath, this power of you know, invoking the memory of this slain president and what he intended and what he wanted, and that we have a kind of momentum that we haven't had, say, throughout the 50s, really, to do this kind of thing. And now mm-hmm. here – Here's this golden opportunity, essentially, to you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm retaining the same leadership. I mean, we're going to capitalize on what Kennedy, um, you know, intended here. Although I would also include with, 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 with Johnson in a way that I think obviously wasn't pronounced as much with Kennedy, um, a, a serious um, inclusion of doing something substantial about. Um, racial inequality uh, in the United States at the same time, in a way that Kennedy really didn't. Yeah, there's actually a question about that from Billy Gallagher wants to know, wasn't LBJ far more progressive in terms of civil rights than others? Uh, he mentions the story about when his maid had to stop to use the bathroom on the side of the road because they couldn't use the segregated facilities. So uh, how, I guess maybe a, a more specific question here, how committed was Johnson to civil rights reform? Sure. Anybody have um, any thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a quick stab here, and then Please. and then and then uh, let, let let Kevin weigh in here. I, I I would agree first and foremost that in terms of his progressivism and his progressive focus on the necessity of improving the plight of African Americans, um, race relations, all those kinds of things, that I I I think Johnson was you know absolutely sincere uh, in that effort. I think he was committed to it. Um, you know, he he himself had grown up, of course, frankly, in pretty impoverished circumstances. Uh, you know, in the hill country of Texas, as he you know never tired of pointing out. Uh, <laughs> um, but 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 of course, you know, I mean, it, it was true. And um, so, as far as his, uh, his sensibility, I think to those kinds of things, and the extent to which, obviously, you know, as far as you know, the fruition of this effort here in the Civil Rights Act, his being attuned to. Um, you know, attuned to Martin Luther King Jr., for example, um, placed him, to my mind, far out in front of, say, a Kennedy who had to be, I, I think, you know, to a certain extent, cajoled by by his own brother, the Attorney General, really, to get him to move much, for example, on the James Meredith issue uh, in in Mississippi. So, you know, in terms of integration, so. Um, you know, again, I think uh, I think Johnson was sincere. I, I think he acted forthrightly in that in that matter, um, and 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 I think he was well out in front of his um, of his predecessor in that respect. And he did reach out to uh, the black community, uh, uh, black leadership from time to time, did he not? He did. Uh, yeah, he did. more than he... people most people probably realize, and that that to me really does set him apart from uh, Franklin Roosevelt, for example, who was. Either either didn't take this as seriously as Johnson, or who was distracted by other problems and didn't have the time to deal with it. But right. he had a cognizance of it too. I think in terms of being in his in, in his own home state, you know, the difference mm-hmm. between a yellow dog Democrat and a progressive Democrat, and the fact that he had to, um, you know, that that was a certain liability to put it somewhat mildly with <laughs> among um, you know Democrats, white Democrats in Texas, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know the fact that he was willing to. 
in, engage in that fight, so to speak, I think speaks um, you know pretty substantially to his sincerity in in, in that fight. I do the one thing I would point out, and this isn't directly related, is I do appreciate the irony of referring to. Uh, Johnson's views, which we would consider more enlightened, I think, than, than the mainstream of his party and certainly the southern wing of his party. I, I find it interesting that we, we refer to those views as, as progressive, uh, th- nah. thinking about the progressives themselves. And, I see what you're going to do. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and you, you think about you know the, the way somebody like Woodrow Wilson thought about race and the way the Beaveridges and the Tafts and the, the Orville Platts and, and you know the Orville, uh, Orville Platts standing up in the Senate and saying that the Declaration of Independence only applies to civilized people. And that was the progressive view and, and the justification for turning the, the Philippines into an imperial colony. And, and so now, but now we refer to what we think of as enlightened views of race as, as progressive when that, that, you know, at the time the, the, the quote unquote conservatives, the Republicans were the people who held those views. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, my, I, I'm I'm imagining my, my, most of the folks who've tuned in here today are where you know what was it maybe no more than a month or two ago where and I don't know how, how that continues right now, but at Princeton, you know, Wilson's home base uh, of Princeton, you know, past president and so on and so forth, he's been you know um, substantially um, um, protested uh, at Princeton, right, for uh, essentially not, uh, not, 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 not just simply not adhering to or hewing to any kind of a line and enlightened position on race relations, but for positively being racist um, uh, himself. You know, so, he could, I, so he, he would have been contrasted with TR in that respect. So can I just get? Uh, so I want to be clear in my own mind on this, if you don't mind. So. Well, let me do it this way. Wilson, as you both know, for example, uh, it took his bearings a lot from his sort of sense of where history had brought us from or to mm-hmm. and where history was taking us. So a lot of things for Wilson was timing of things, right? So, for example, one of his arguments, I suppose, would have been uh, for resegregating Washington, D.C., was that it was just not the right historical time for for black Americans to 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 uh, to hold civil office. Or, or maybe something like we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. Maybe eventually, someday they will uh, be capable of uh, participating more fully in government. But the time is not right. That's my take on kind of how Wilson would come from. So, are you suggesting that either John, either Johnson rejected that sense of things, or perhaps he accepted them and said, "But now the time is right for us to push for civil rights." Or do you think Johnson was simply uh, in a position where he could no longer ignore? Uh, these kinds of demands. I guess I'm really questioning the extent to which Johnson embraced civil rights uh, uh, reforms as a matter of justice. Right. I'm not sure. How, I'm not sure how clear I am about that. And and you know, never. This is not to say anything about Johnson because this is the way politicians operate generally. But there was political opportunity here. Right? Uh, that is to say, yet yeah, there were costs, and we tend to focus on the costs in terms of whatever. Uh, damage he might have done to the, the white Southern wing of the Democratic Party, but there were opportunities also. Uh, and so, you know, given the political environment, I, I, it seems to me that he sensed those opportunities. Yeah, um, I, 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 I look at him in the context of when he's actually engaged in this, as I say, that when, when you get get to the point of the civil rights, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the legislation in 64, um, certainly 
you know, uh, you know, you, you, you opened up, Chris, by talking about uh, Woodrow Wilson and a sense of timing and whether or not the timing was right or not. I mean, I, I would just simply say, you know, with I, I mean, I'm a little I suppose I'm a little bit more circumspect about Wilson uh, on that issue, okay. uh, perhaps. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 where Johnson is concerned, I do think that. Let me say that I think he thought that the time absolutely was ripe, yeah. um, and you know you you, ha- you know you do sort of have this collective building of momentum. You know, over the fifties, you had actually you know an attempt at some semblance of civil rights legislation in the fifties, uh, which didn't frankly do much. If if among other things, your objective was you know increased voter participation and you know increased political opportunities, those kinds of things. Um, but that he had a – how shall I say? He had a kind of critical mass here uh, you know, at that point, and, and you know, Johnson, way too uh, consummate a politician not to know that there were going to be – on one hand, sure, there were going to be attendant risks in his position, but uh, on the other hand, I think he also sensed that um, – I, I don't want to say that it was good theater, but that he had the necessary momentum to carry this through. Yeah, was Johnson uh, very active in pushing and promoting the Civil Rights Act? You know how active he was in that as uh, as president. There is, I mean, there is one little snippet that I remember where he, uh, I forget if it was if he was talking to Richard Richard Russell or Fulbright, uh, and, and he said, "If you you mess with me on this civil rights thing, and I'll burn you down." Ah, yeah. Uh, okay. And said, so, you know, this 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 is. You know, John, Johnson was known for his for his legislative tactics as Senate Majority Leader, and I, and it, it it you know if that's any indication, then it sounds like yeah he was he was pushing for this. This it wasn't something that was just he put out there and allowed Congress to run with. So, Very good. Can I ask about this? Is really interesting. Can I ask? Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. Kevin, you mentioned his invite, all the new sort of doors that Johnson opened up in terms of policy. Can can you guys talk a little bit about where his environmentalism comes from? <laughs> what is the environment? Let's talk about the, if you don't mind, what is his environmental policy? Because I think, I mean, a lot of people associate Theodore Roosevelt as the first environmentalist president, but Johnson was really big on this, right? I mean, yeah, he this really one, pushed this hard. This was one of the three focal areas in the Great Society speech uh, that that he had marked out for, uh, that he had marked out for, uh, as, as like I said, as a central sort of feature of the program: cities, countryside, and 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 classrooms. And it wasn't under his administration that uh, a lot of the major legislation was passed. So the you know the Endangered Species Act and and uh, the Clean Air Act amendments in 1970 and so on. Those were th- those were yet to come. But uh, I, I think he saw uh, environmental. Uh, uh, Despoliation as uh, uh, as a cause of sort of cultural decay in the way he talks about it. That it that is to say, um, it's it's being surrounded by ugliness is is degrading to the soul, and then that was that was sort of uh, a central feature in, in in the way he talked about conservation or environmentalism. So again, it points back to that idea from the Great Society speech where. It's it's sort of the quality of life, and not mm-hmm. not quality, not in a merely economic sense, right? We've right. achieved a kind of economic quality of life, right? Uh, in a certain sense, for some, but now it's about how we actually live, right? It's right. About, he, he goes out of his way to distinguish between quantity of life and quality right. of life. That's and what so, I was looking and, for earlier, yeah. Right, 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 and 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 it's it's the quality of life, and this is again. I think a big shift away from not just FDR, but the earlier progressivism as well. I mean, TR has his 
his interest in conservation and he works with Gifford Pinchot. And, but the, the focus of, of earlier progressivism, as I understand it, and Bill, if you want to jump in and disagree with me, I'm more than happy. Um, but the, the, the main focus is on economic tyranny and, and, and freedom from economic tyranny, uh, not simply in the sense of ordinary poverty, but in the sense of, of private unchecked control of economic resources by a few. Um, but, but that really shifts once you get to the 1960s and not just with Johnson, but towards, towards this improvement of the quality of life. Yeah, I would just add there, uh, Kevin, a c- couple things. I don't disagree. Uh, I would I, I would say, um, again, by way of circumstance, um, you, you know, there, there's nothing like, uh, you know, an environmental movement as it would have been understood emerging in the 60s, you know, say, for example, during the New Deal. I mean, there's right. just simply not. Conservation right. and environmentalism, of course, are two very different things, uh, and they're understood mm-hmm. uh, very differently. Uh, I, it, where Johnson comes from on, on all this, um, Chris, by, by, in terms of your, your particular question, I, I, I know that he referenced TR on conservation more than once, and of course he talks, the, you know, speaks the language of conservation, but he puts it again in the context of the, you know, the elevating of the human person, right? I mean, these spaces are necessary for the elevation of the human person. You know, it's not just we're not just going to have an ugly American. We're going to have an ugly America, and the two are more or less sort of intertwined. You can't have you know the uplift of an individual if you're living in the midst of this kind of you know squalor. I would also say he he drew you know to, to my understanding anyway, and, and how heavily I don't know, but he drew somewhat on his own experiences, of course, in Texas. Where sure. if you live in you know you live in West Texas, you can't help but be in some sense sort of confronted by the nature of the environment in which you live. It's sort of like the Egyptians, you know. If the Nile's <laughs> flooding, things are good. If the Nile isn't flooding, you know, th- things can right. be very bad, right? Uh, the, he, he talked about the Pertinalis River in Texas, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the hardships that are brought about by that kind of thing, and yet the ability to transform that situation. But you know, when, when you had the necessary effort, the tra- you know transform that, turn it into a productive situation, that kind of thing. And he also put, I think collectively, and this is sort of his broader appeal in this great society language, is he put a lot of this in the in the nature of the language of stewardship. That you know, there's a responsibility to be a steward of these resources. So he talks about human resources. He talks about you know physical resources in in you know the the earth literally. All, you know we have to be a great steward of all these things, and this is part of that. Um, you know this is part of that responsibility uh, in essence. I think that yeah. Will makes an excellent. If I can jump in one more time, oh, because please, I want to, yeah, I want to make please. one more distinction uh, in, in your references to conservation and TR and stewardship. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between LBJ and the environmentalism that follows, uh, because you, you, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Johnson's uh, quote unquote environmentalism is is much more about stewardship and responsible use and uh, we were talking about uplift of the soul and 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 sort of moral and cultural elevation it doesn't seem to me to take on the tone that environmentalism later takes which is say humanity is the enemy humanity is the is the villain of the piece and um, the, the later inversion of uh, of, of sort of the, the order of existence, right? That, that is to say, nature's good, man is bad, and the best thing that could happen is, in a sense, the repeal of the Industrial Revolution. He's not arguing for that. He doesn't promote policies that, that attempt to do that. That seems to me to be a kind of environmentalism that, even if it's developing in the 60s, it sort of comes to fruition later on. Yeah, we've yeah, been getting... I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, those, that's great. We've been getting a, a number of really good questions 
Um, so, but I just mentioned one really quick. Um, I don't know who submitted it, but they asked about the connection of uh, between government's role to provide access to beauty and this idea of freedom. And I think you actually just sort of touched on it, right? Because, because uh, Johnson, from Johnson's perspective, the the reason for preserving natural beauty and the environment is is for what it provides to human beings in a sense, right? Yeah. So there's a connection. Johnson uses this language of you can't be free or there's a spiritual aspect to, to, you know, having access to natural beauty and these sorts of things. Um, so am I, am I on to something here or does that sound right? What's the, I guess the question that they're asking is what's the connection between freedom and access to, to natural beauty for Johnson? <sighs> That's a hard one. I know. But he does use that language, right? I mean, there's he sort of ties it all in there somehow in sure. order for us to l rise to the great society and fulfill our, I guess, our greater understanding of what it means to be free, to be complete, maybe fulfilled spiritually as a human being. We have to have access to beauty. Or does it just come back to, Kevin, what you were saying earlier? Uh, you know, ugly, ugly environments make ugly souls. Um, um, go, go ahead, Kevin. No, I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm trying to formulate an answer. One. I don't know yeah, how it, to answer this one. It, it is a tough one. I, you know, I do. I do think that that if your, if your soul is is, you know, if if I can just keep playing with that language, if if your soul is crushed down by ugliness in the same way that it's crushed down by uh, economic necessity, you really can't. You really can't be free, and that ties in some some. Uh, some uh, that ties into some policies that aren't necessarily the environment, such as promotion of the arts and humanities, and national endowment oh, yeah. for the arts and national endowment for the humanities. In other words, we are uh, what Johnson wanted to do with those was uh, bring the cultural fruits of civilization to the great body of the people in the same way that Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, was trying to bring the economic fruits of civilization to the great body of the people. Yeah. The, another, another stage in the development of freedom. Yeah, Justin just mentioned that the, this seems to tie into the larger idea of pursuit of happiness, as Johnson mentions, right, in the Great mm -hmm. Society speech, right? right? The purpose of government is to pursue the happiness of the people. Um, so, good. Uh, a couple of other questions that have been submitted. Um, uh, we mentioned Medicare and Medicaid. Somebody wanted to know uh, how much resistance, Justin wanted to know how much resistance did Johnson meet um, in Congress regarding Medicare, Medicaid. And if you don't mind saying something about that, and then also maybe segue from that into a larger, you know, Johnson's use of executive power. How do we think of Johnson's effect on the office of the presidency? And what was his relationship really like with Congress? Anybody? Yeah, I'll jump in there just very, very briefly because my my knowledge base won't allow much more than a very brief jump. Uh, I think, as, in ter in terms of in terms of some of the opposition, I do know, for example, that he had he, he certainly had some opposition within the medical community, I, I, which is not to say that it was obviously entirely within the medical medical community. Congressionally speaking, I don't have numbers on this. I think certainly within the ranks of his own party, he got. Um, um, and and I would even kind of qualify that more in terms of saying the um, the, the the northern or northeastern wing of the party he got much more support I think probably in terms of numbers on that but obviously he got the support overall that he needed to sustain those kinds of things um, in terms of the use of executive power. Um, you know, I, I I can't separate this in my in my mind as an historian from just Johnson overall on executive power in um in 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 the context of Vietnam, okay? Because he's talking about executive power in both contexts, and as he says there, you know, um, 
you know, a little bit, I suppose, shades of, of, of other presidencies, um, and that is, and, and I'm thinking, of course, specifically of FDR in the in the New Deal. Um, uh, you know, if, if if I can't get some of these done by way of legislation, there may be another way ultimately to to go about doing that. So uh, he's certainly cognizant of the possibilities of using executive authority to advance some of these if he can't get the legislative support ultimately that he, uh, you know, needs um, on, on on either case. Yeah. The, okay. the, uh, the, the Social Security Act amendments itself in 1965, uh, those, those passed through Congress with, with massive majorities uh, in, in both uh, House and Senate in, 19, in 1965. And, and part of the reason for that, of course, is, is uh, the, ni- the 1964 election was uh, the, the majorities that Johnson's party received in the 64 elections were, were uh, uh unbelievably large right mm-hmm. and uh i mean i mean it's just just massive and so i was just i just did a quick look and and the, the social security act amendments passed the house 307 to 116 okay wow and passed the senate 70 to 24 and so some of that some of that was massive democratic majorities but but not all of it and and so there there was some I think there was some cross party support. That's one of the things that you know, if you start looking at the development of these entitlement programs, many of the major ones for all of the debate that took place on them, uh, passed with huge support. And, and that's what made the, the entitlement program expansions of this century so interesting. Is is the the substantial resistance? So for instance, uh, Medicare Part D, which was you know passed during George W. Bush's administration, Republican Congress, Republican President, and then the Affordable Care Act, Democratic Congress, Democratic President, both of them mm-hmm. with sharply divided legislative chambers. Unlike things like the Social Security Act amendments in '65. Yeah, Kevin, could I just throw this out there? Because sure. I'm curious, given that, in Johnson's case, how much of it do you think, or, or you know, Chris, either one, how much of it do you think was due to to Johnson's prior sort of legislative prowess himself? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the fact that he was someone who was a very commanding person. I mean, when he opens up in these speeches, you know, my right. friends out here, presumably he's not just simply talking <laughs> about my Democratic friends. I mean, you know, right. I'm, 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 I'm the father here, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and, and he was. Figure. Yeah, I think I think it was you know ability meets opportunity. So in, in, so much of this passed in '65 and '66 when he had not only were there Democratic majorities, but there were liberal Democratic majorities in both houses in that Congress, which is to say he could ignore every conservative Southern Democrat and pass his legislation solely on the strength of liberal Democrats in that Congress. And uh, now he didn't. I mean, he got votes from from across parties and across uh, sections of the country. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right to point out this doesn't it doesn't pass the way it passes, not just without his connections, but without his ability as a legislative operator. I mean, he's he's a consummate dealer. He's a consummate persuader. Uh, and, and I use that term very broadly. Uh, you know, there, there are great photographs of him giving people what was called the treatment. Right. Yeah, right. Towering, barrel-chested man, and he would use sort of subtle physical intimidation as a way to persuade me- members of Congress, both during his time in the Senate and as president. 
Yeah, and he was exceedingly well informed. I mean, this is one of the things. Yeah. Again, I don't know if you, if you guys have experienced it, or, or the, our, our listeners here, maybe in their own classrooms, to the extent that anybody has ideas or presuppositions about Johnson that he was somehow kind of this uh, sort of frontier nabob, this Westerner who <laughs> doesn't really know anything. Uh, you know, when he when when he opens up with one of these before the the editorial cartoonist about he's got a few notes here, you know. You know that 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 that, that that's uh, that's code for Johnson, right? I mean, yeah. he never had a few notes on anything. I mean, right. he, he, people talked about the Johnson treatment, me in terms of not just an invasion of your personal space, but <laughs> this welter of notes that came out of his vest pocket. That he was actually, you know, he he he, he right. uh, without respect to the you know the advisability or not of any decisions that he made, he certainly worked to you know, to inform himself sure. on things right. massively. Yeah, that's very useful. We have, um, if you don't mind, maybe one or two more questions on sort of Johnson's domestic role. And then uh, I, there are a lot of questions about Vietnam, of course, as well, right? And Johnson's foreign policy. So, um, gosh, where to start? How about this one? This is a loaded question from Matt. <laughs> did did uh, LBJ reflect the ideologies of our founders? If so how, if not why? <laughs> that's a fun one. Uh yeah, is that is that uh, is that a trap or is that low hanging fruit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting one because he uses he uses the language of liberty and the pursuit of happiness and, and yeah, equality, of, of course. But one of the things that characterizes and this is this is Johnson, you know, um, sort of learning at the feet of the masters, the other progressive presidents that that uh, Will talked about, especially Franklin Roosevelt, which was uh, co optation of language. Right. So so when uh, when a progressive or post progressive uh, liberal is talking about freedom or liberty, they're really not talking about the same thing that James Madison's talking about. And, and that's I think that's fairly easy to demonstrate, because for, for, the, for the founders, liberty and freedom were terms that were part of the, the law of nature. That is to say, they, they were bounded by. Uh, the, this absolute moral principle and the way they understood the natural law, that is to say, that much of the law of God that one can understand through unassisted reason, that is to say, so, so liberty was fixed. Liberty was not what the progressives talk about. When the, when the progressives talk about it, they talk much more about something like, uh, if, paraphrasing Dewey, liberation from external constraint. Mm -hmm. And the, the founders never view it that way. Freedom, freedom or liberty is... You know, think about Franklin in some of his work, uh, this great essay, uh, Information on Those Who Would Remove to America. His understanding right. of liberty is we are going to allow you to deal with external constraint, that is necessity, in any way that, that you think is, 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 is good for you, consistent with natural law. Right? Right. Whereas for earlier progressives, but also for later post-progressive liberals, it becomes about emancipation from that necessity. Right. And hence a greater role, a positive role for government. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's government actually that liberates. In that right. Sense. Yeah. And, that, and that's and that makes a lot of sense in the progressive era because you've you've democratized political power. Right. Right. And so the, the government is now the instrument of the people. It's not the instrument of, say, during the founding that the issue was. Uh, that the, the government that they was ruling them was being controlled by a, a hereditary aristocratic clique. So the solution for someone again like Dewey was democratize political power. Right now that right. it's ours, we can use it in all kinds of ways. Right. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah, I would add, I would I would okay. add there um, to uh, Krista what uh, Kevin had to say. Um, if 
and, and I'm not as familiar with it in terms of LBJ's rhetoric, specifically his political rhetoric or his political economy, if you will, as say a Woodrow Wilson or even a T.R. But mm-hmm. um, you know the acceptance, you know, to, to the acceptance of an administrative state, the acceptance of the necessity mm-hmm. of these kinds of regulatory bodies in in the interest of, as you say, positive government to achieve these ends. Clearly, government has. Um, you know, in terms of its function, um, you know, when when he cites, for example, as he does, the the, the general welfare clause in support of ultimately what it is he's doing, uh, I mean, I think it puts him pretty pretty clearly in in the in, in the camp, if you will, of a sort of Woodrow Wilson, elastic, organic, Darwinian, evolutionary mm-hmm. understanding of the nature of government, um, and so circumstances again determine. Um, action. It's not. It, you, you can't root this again fundamentally in some sort of abstract principle, so that you're what T.R. would have called a stand pattern. Um, <laughs> the circumstances of our day demand something, you know, different. We have to do something different than what we've done. Now, you know, we're not experiencing 20% unemployment. You know, the the, the point again, in, in part, I think for LBJ is is. Um, yeah, they're different circumstances. The different circumstances are that we are a people of plenty, uh, and and then we have to you know fundamentally use again the powers of government to address those who have not borne an equal share in this. So, you know, as far as the founders' question, you know, it's 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 again easy enough. I mean, anybody, and I'm, I don't mean this to be cynical or abusive of Johnson uh, in, in, in this instance, but anybody can wrap themselves in the mantle of. People, you know, there are people doing without, and that's not being truly free, uh, you know, human. And we have to do some kinds of things ultimately about that. But what, you know, what, what, what do we have to do? Or, you know, what, what ultimately, you know, can you positively sort of ennoble these people by virtue of legislation, governmental programs, those kinds of things? Um, or, you know, is there much more kind of a laissez-faire? Uh, you know, understanding that sort of requisite to that. So I put it much more in a, you know, obviously in that sense, in a kind of Wilsonian, um, how shall I say, Frank Goodno administrative necessity um, uh, yeah. um, camp. Yeah. You might say. No, and that brings up, if you don't mind, I, I, I know Please, you, yeah. Chris, you want to move on to talk about Vietnam, and I do too, but it, what Will was saying uh really brought up what I think is an interesting uh, contradiction or, or difficulty in Johnson's program, which is to say he's, he's very much concerned with these emergent new left uh, quality of life and uh, cultural liberation and the concern that modern life is crushing individuality. And, and so, so there, there's that theme in his thought. But if you look at a lot of these speeches where he talks about program, the, the solution is massive government programs administered by experts in centralized bureaucracies, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. is to say, what what the new left is criticizing as part and parcel of what's causing this oppression, right? And and so it's 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 does that make sense? In other words, he, yeah, he's kind of sure. he's kind of got his feet in both worlds, right? That is to say, the yeah. the, the progressive New Deal administrative world, and then but then trying to use those mechanisms. To address these these emergent concerns that are very different and, and and in a way hostile to the the delivery method that he wants to use to solve the problems. Yeah, I I wonder if his if his attempt to reconcile those two things would have been what he called his creative federalism, hmm. right? But we know that was a failure, right? Right. I think. I mean, it's just another. I mean, he at first he seems like he's calling for this. I actually he wants to. <laughs> Right. Reach down from the upper echelons of, of national government into state and local communities, especially local communities, and set you know, up you, these advisory boards. But those uh, those fail. 
Yeah, the, com- the the community action councils. Yes. Which yeah. which are which right. are hated. My grandfather was a community action council president in the right. 1960s, and and it. Uh, uh, and they were roundly hated by local governments because they were bypassing them. It wasn't it wasn't federalism. It was we're going to have branch offices of the federal government. No, yeah. when when you get somebody that really tries to to do something with federalism, you'll know it because the Washington establishment will turn on him incredibly fast. And that person is Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. But by the way, Kevin, you're right. It's not federalism. It's creative federalism. Right, 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 right. Right. right? So, okay. Good. All right. There are a lot of other great questions uh, about the the Great Society. Maybe we'll have time to come back to a final assessment of the Great Society domestically, but maybe we should turn to Johnson's attempts to establish the Great Society abroad, especially in Vietnam, Um, uh, which I think there's evidence for, right? Obviously, Will, you've you've taught this. Kevin, I'm sure you teach this as well and thought about it. Um, Will, you mentioned in your uh, earlier remarks toward the beginning of our conversation, um, <clears throat> or, or maybe it was Kevin, I can't remember, uh, that, that, there, that, that, that uh, Johnson tried to sort of have it both ways in Vietnam, and in many ways that led to some of the failures that we're very familiar with in Vietnam. So what did you mean? I'm not sure who said that, but what did you mean by that? Yeah, I'll, 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 own, I'll own that one. Yeah, here, that was Chris. you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's the it's uh, in, in some sense I suppose we're thinking along the lines of the guns and butter idea, right? I, I need guns and butter. Uh, you know, that's a circumstance that was forced upon me. I mean, it. You know, whatever else one may say about Johnson in Vietnam, I mean, he inherited the situation in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't make the situation in Vietnam. I don't want to get off track here, but I'll just simply say, you know. A month prior, not even a month prior to Kennedy's assassination, of course, you know, no Dien Diem in South Vietnam was assassinated. Now, you used to look at a lot of the scholarship on Diem um, historically has been pretty negative, but I will say there's a lot more coming out lately that looks at Diem in a different way. And I'll, mm-hmm. I will say that one of the very few people within Kennedy's administration who was positive on DM was Johnson. Johnson had gone there. He'd gone to Southeast Asia. He pronounced, you know, admittedly with considerable, I think, um, hyperbole here, but he had pronounced Diem to be the uh, Churchill of Asia. Okay, well, he may not have been the Churchill of Asia, but, 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 you know, he had brought some order out of a very difficult situation mm-hmm. there. So right. here he, you know, here's Johnson as president, and he inherits a mess. He's 16,000 military advisors. Clearly, there's military action that Americans are engaged in, if, even if it is covert. Um, uh, you know, so no, no question about his inheriting um, those kinds of things. On the other hand, you know, he's he's um, he's focused on his domestic agenda. Um, you know, he's not he doesn't you know some of his off the cuff comments privately about Vietnam yield an impression here that you know he didn't really give a flip much about Vietnam at the end of the day, <laughs> except to the extent that I'll be left to the Vietnamese to figure out for themselves. Uh, you know his I mean you know. Um, his, his, so again, you know, his quotes on that, uh, with respect to that, none, none too favorable. But it's something that he can't ignore, uh, and he knows this. And so, you know, um, and there's a, there, I, I think anyway, a really good book on this. It's probably 15 or 20 years old now, but it's called Dereliction of Duty by a guy named H.R. McMaster. Yeah, yeah. He's a yeah, historian at North Carolina, and you know what? He really does detail this idea that. Johnson, through his own suspicion, you know, his cynicism, his insecurities, he hamstrings the ability of anybody to do anything largely positively where Vietnam is concerned, um, because he because he will not be honest and he will manipulate within his own um, ranks, uh, the Joint Chiefs, and admittedly, the Joint Chiefs 
at least according to McMaster, and I think he makes a convincing argument, the Joint Chiefs allow themselves to be manipulated to the extent that they at least won't say, you know, we told you what an honest assessment of what we needed in Vietnam was. Now, you won't do it. Uh, You know, don't ask me to go along in a positive fashion with this gradual escalation that your whiz kid, uh, Robert McNamara, has (laughs) dreamed up here, who has absolutely no military experience whatsoever. Um, You know, he's a mathematician, he's a statistician, whatever. Um, but what he's not is a military strategist and, and tactician. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so when you look at the dynamic of that relationship, I mean, you know, Johnson says up front, you will not pin some Southeast Asian situation on me that would be something akin to China. Or, or, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we're going to have to hold the line there. Um, but we're going to have to do it on the cheap. OK. And he, he talks about this, you know, and and. And Robert McNamara presents him presumably with a way of doing both, right? You know, we can minimize yeah. Vietnam, do, en- do enough to be palatable in Vietnam so that we don't look like we're cutting and running in Vietnam. And, 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 and one of the ways we're going to save the necessary funds for great society programs, frankly, is through the gutting of the military. I mean, he was very clear about this, as was McNamara. Mr. McNamara is saving me a billion dollars in the first year, and I have every expectation based on his cost-cutting measures, which substantially, as I say, included the military, that he's going to save me three or four billion dollars over over the next three or four years. So, um, you know, J- Johnson was very clear. He earliest meeting with the Joint Chiefs after he was w- one of the earliest meetings. Anyway, he said he said to the to the Joint Chiefs, "I have I, I want all of you to." send me a picture, you know, a five by eight or whatever. He said, I'm going to have those. I want, I want to put your pictures up on the wall uh, in my office. He said, I want, I'm going to think about my military men on occasion. I want you to know that I'm going to be thinking about you guys. Well, thinking what, uh, you know, thinking good, you know, you know, in other words, you're watched. I mean, the language is unmistakably clear. If you don't toe the line on this, you'll find yourself in trouble. So when he asked for recommendations and he got some honesty up front from the Joint Chiefs, look, uh, Mr. President, we need to seal off the the ability of the North Vietnamese to penetrate the South. We need to close off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, and and we should have a land-based invasion of the North. And it's going to take – you know, five, six hundred thousand troops, and it's going to take them as quickly as we can possibly get them there. Now, he rejects that. Uh, it, 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 immediately, you know, th- th- now, this is what's coming from the Joint Chiefs. So he he has already set up a kind of relationship up front there that I think hamstrung any kind of possibility for open you know communication uh, between himself, his National Security Council, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Huh. Um, and he you know he found guys who would basically be his lackeys, you know, people who would tell him what he wanted. I mean, McNamara told him what he wanted. He was very good mm-hmm. at understanding Johnson's needs and fulfilling them. Um, and the same thing, frankly, I think with Maxwell Taylor. Yeah, that's fascinating. What what about his what about his relationship with Westmoreland? Because there's a question from uh, from Billy who who asked about the advice he was getting from McNamara. Um, and sometimes, of course, uh, the idea is that Westmoreland was also giving him adva- bad advice on the conduct of the war. What, how, did, how did Johnson – to what extent did Johnson want to get involved in the sort of planning of how the war should be executed? Was he, was he just 30,000 foot? Was he really involved in the sort of you know, on the ground? I, not, I don't want to get carried away with it too much, but I guess what was his relationship with sort of the military strategy or those who were planning the military strategy of, of engaging in the war in Vietnam? 
Well, I'm going to leave this one to you. I don't. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll put it this way. I think, first of all, just the simple answer is he was massively engaged in much of the minutia of military planning. Um, he had a, a, you know, downstairs, wherever, whatever office, I don't know, some subterranean room there in the White House, but he had a massive mock-up, right, a topographical map of Vietnam. He, it was said that he poured over that at all hours, you know, obviously losing lots of sleep, uh, and, 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 you know, I'm sure that he was, um, and that he was, um, this was a complaint oft repeated from members of the military leadership that 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 there's such oversight here as to be ultimately straitjacketed in the prosecution of this war. I'll give you but one example. It's unheard of, really unheard of. Uh, it's, it's actually, I think, astounding when you think about it. Um, you know, U.S. naval and, and air force pilots had a saying about their bombing raids in the north, or even some of their airstrikes in the south, and that was. You know, you know, they had a kind of a cliche. U.S. U.S. air raids, good at ten, two, and four. Well, there was a commercial, you know, for Dr. Pepper in the '60s. You know, Dr. Pepper, it's good at ten, two, and four. In other words, they're fundamentally predictable. You know, when they're coming, you know where they're coming. Uh, there's mm-hmm. nothing, uh, you know. There, well, you know, that, that was because there was such an earmarked management of exactly what you could bomb. But it happened more than once that, there, for example, there would be. You know, U.S. aircraft. I mean, airborne, um, seeking to hit a target that they identified. Well, they would have to get permission from Johnson to do that. I, I, they didn't get permission. Wow. They didn't get, get permission from Westmoreland to do that. They are. There are actually cases of them, and I can't remember the precise route, but it had to go from their aircraft. So bear in mind, they're airborne over South Vietnam or North Vietnam. They communicate with some command center in South Vietnam, say at Da Nang, for example. That communication is relayed to Hawaii, which is relayed to Johnson in D.C., and then Johnson gets back with his response as to whether or not that's okay. Now, I'm not saying he didn't ever do that in consultation with anybody else, but the you know the, the sort of the cumbersome aspect of it, as well as the micromanagement, I think is largely what has come to kind of characterize the way Johnson oversaw the war effort. Um, that he mm. he had to be there. Uh, he had to be there for a variety of reasons of his, you know, his own making. I don't want a wider war. He said this over and over again. I, I you know, what is what 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 keeps me up at night, Mr. McNamara? Well, what keeps me up at night is uh, the nightmare of a bomb being dropped down a Russian smokestack in Hanoi Harbor or something, and then here goes World War Three, that kind of stuff. So uh, he he often enough anyway was. Um, it's not it's it's not mythology that he there was a lot of micromanagement of. Uh-huh. That's fascinating. So can so you said once again, Will, he didn't want to be there, but he had to be there, right? Or did I miss? Did I misunderstand? No, no, no. Yeah, so, yeah. He, he, he. Can you just say more about why he had, why he thought he had to be there, but also why he didn't want to be there? Because because the, the, the fact that he didn't want to be there is actually really interesting. Because I've, you know, I've read various things that that um, that suggest that. Uh, that, that that Vietnam was ideologically important in a sense for Johnson. Um, yeah. yeah, he he understood it. I I would contrast it, Chris, with a sort of a personal, you know, LBJ. If 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 LBJ could have his druthers, he wouldn't have the headache of Vietnam at all. I suppose to a certain extent that might have been true about anybody. He would have liked things to have gone, you know, in the direction of freedom, you know, unification, uh, you know, under. Uh, 
you know, some kind of a democratic polity, or at least not under a communist totalitarian one. Um, but at a personal level, he didn't want to be there. But a kind of Cold War imperative meant that there was no getting out of our commitment to Southeast Asia. He spells this out in his speech on Vietnam. You know, right. when he says, "Look, we've been there since the '50s. We've spent right. two billion dollars in Vietnam. How do you get out of that uh, and do it delicately? And how do you do it also in the face of you know the you know the domestic agenda that you have going? It's very yeah. hard in terms of what I like to refer to as kind of, again a sort of Cold War imperative. And remember, Republicans prior to I mean, he's got to get elected in his own right in '64. He he doesn't know, so far as I'm aware, that he's going to win this crushing biggest electoral victory since Franklin Roosevelt was elected in the 1930s. He doesn't know that for a fact. I don't I, I don't know. Maybe he had a suspicion of it when he found out that Barry Goldwater was going to be the Republican nominee. I'm, I don't know, but I will say this much. Um, Republicans are pounding him in '64 on the idea of being soft on communism, right? Soft on oh, yeah. soft on communism, yeah. right? and even in the in the in the Tonkin Gulf incident, right? Uh, two incidents at Tonkin, one of them that actually happened, one of them that was reported to have happened, but actually didn't. In any case, he didn't respond to the first one with military action. When the second one rolled around, he effectually, effectually, I have to respond to this. Um, because if I don't, they're going to get some tra- – remember, this is prior to the election in 64. They're going to get some traction out of this soft on communism thing. I can't have American destroyers being attacked by torpedo boats and sit idly by and do nothing. One, one attack may be one thing, but two attacks is another, and you know, I just can't do nothing uh, uh, fundamentally about that. Yeah. So um, you know, he's, he's compelled in that sense I, to, to I do think something. That- I think that you have to look at the larger. I mean, what's what's going on in Vietnam doesn't isn't just about Vietnam uh, at that point. Which is to say, th- there's a whole raft of unstable governments in Southeast Asia, and so there are, there are larger concerns about. Well, look, if you know, um, if South Vietnam falls, right, Laos is under siege, Cambodia's got its problems. Uh, Thailand's government was tottering, and its its connection to the West was tottering. Uh, in Indonesia, make sure I get my timeline right, but Suharto is <laughs> is flirting with the communists, and so you know, is he going to fall into, mm-hmm. is he going to fall into the, the the communist orbit? And what about the Philippines? The Filipino government is not particularly strong at this point, and so I, I think part of what's you know one way you can think about this also is you know we have to not just draw the line, but we have to show these other governments that. Um, yeah. The United States will will fight communist insurgency. That's a great point because it seems like Johnson recognizes that there's that sort of saving face. The United States has always got to uh, persuade these other countries that are on the verge of turning toward communism that that the, uh, that the United States is the more viable of the two options. Right? Mm-hmm. There's something good and strong and stable about the United States. So does he fall into that face-saving trap? Uh, uh, John Lewis Gaddis talks about this in his Strategies of Containment book, how one of the big mentalities that sort of t- just takes over uh, during the Cold War is on the part of both the United States and the Soviet Union is this importance of safe uh, face-saving. So is it is that... Uh, well, you know, sort of forefront in Johnson's mind, or what is it? You say that like it's a bad simple. thing, right? No, you no, say face no, saving. Like, yeah, yeah, it. Uh, I mean, it, it, but but you should. It really is important to do that, right? I mean, it, it's it's you know if you're if you're going to 
if you're going to claim great power status and if your strategy is to contain communism. Right. But that shouldn't become a reason to do something, right? Well, we've got to save face. So it, it seems as, I mean, at least I think Gaddis suggests that 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 attitude that the United States can never d- lose face or appear uh, sort of, you know, weak or we got we got screwed on this or whatever it might be, that attitude becomes so pervasive that we get drawn in to certain kinds of situations right. that on we the should... other hand, Go ahead, it's please. not simply, it's not simply about, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a vanity thing because what, what are the consequences of losing face over Vietnam? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. In other words, there are practical, I mean, um, Steve Hayward talks about this, uh, in his, in his, uh, the uh, first first book on uh, the age of Reagan, the, fir- the first half of this. And what are the larger, what are the larger implications? Right. Hmm. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's, I know it's important. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, uh, I'm going to engage in a little Me Tooism here, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> but but, but uh, again, you know, if you think about this notion of continuity, um, you know, with with say for example Kennedy's briefings from Eisenhower on, you know. Where, where are the trouble spots? And of course, think of Eisenhower in terms of domino theory, um, and Kennedy as being certainly an avid anti-communist. I mean, he, he he's a cold warrior in that respect, and and he obviously subscribes to this and and goes to great lengths to try to ensure, for example, I mean, you know, Kevin mentioned some of these places in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, Kennedy worked very hard to obtain an agreement in Laos that supposedly neutralized Laos. I I, I don't think it did neutralize Laos, but in yeah. any, in any case. It was supposedly it had, and of course there are other examples in Southeast Asia again, as Kevin mentioned, where this kind of thing is going on, and you have success stories and you have failures. The Philippines end up, of course, being a success story, right? Malaysia uh, ends up being a success story. Uh, here, here are cases, you know, Malaysia is a good example. British Malaysia, where you know, look. You know, make the effort, put in the effort, and in fact, this is a you know this is doable. It does. It didn't start World War III, um, and 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 it can be done, and 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 it must be done. Lest you you know think again of Johnson's commentary here at the outset of, of his first um, year in office. I'm I'm not going to be the one. And this is, I suppose, it's these kinds of comments that that, that and I understand you know again benefit of hindsight. But when he starts saying things like I'm not going Going to be the one charged with, okay? Uh, you know that. You know, I understand. There's always the rhetoric of we're going to prevail and we'll stay there as long as is necessary. He says this over and over again, but at the same time, it sounds like you know this is more than just sort of one hand behind the back kind of thing. It is a minimalist approach to the war. And and for me personally, my administration, nobody's going to saddle me. With having lost here, okay. I, I, I'm not saying he wanted it to fall, but I mean, you know, in terms of the nature of the language employed there, uh, it, it, it's not the kind of talk. I, I, I find myself thinking, look at the language he uses for the war on poverty. Nobody mistakes in his rhetoric that he intends to win the war on poverty. But you look at the you look at the nature of the language that he uses in Vietnam. Uh, he doesn't use the same kind of language. It's yeah, much more reticent. True. He talks about the nature of diplomacy here. That hey guys, you know, I mean, uh, you know, for, forgive me. I understand. There's a little bit of satire here, but I'm doing it, I suppose, for effect. Um, I, you know, I, we'll debate with you anytime. We'll talk. We'll negotiate at any time. You know, and you, you, you noted that point where he says we've made offers, and right now we're just not hearing anything. Well. 
No, you're not hearing anything because it's always interpreted as a sign of weakness. Every time you start talking that way, it's mm-hmm. looked upon as a sign of weakness, right? You don't you don't engage in warfare for communication purposes. That's yeah. no, this is F here. That's not what this is about. Yeah, but I'll get to, Will, if you don't mind, just I mean, this is great because now that you've mentioned this, I didn't notice this before. If you look at his State of the Union address of even 1966, yeah, you, the first half of this is. We will win this war, the war on poverty. We're going to win this. We're going to crush all these things, right? But then you get to the Vietnam, his language on Vietnam. You don't get that same kind of language. I actually didn't notice that before. You get It's much softer. So he says things, you know, we have a commitment in Vietnam that we have to honor, or we will we will fulfill our commitment to Vietnam and these kinds of things. That's a, yeah, I never noticed that before. Yeah, it's very striking, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's yeah. very striking. For example, like, uh, you know, we all want peace. Everybody wants peace. Again, I feel this is being enfolded in this kind of peace mantle. We all want peace. Hey, we'll, we'll stop bombing for 20 days. You know, we've stopped bombing. We're going to let you know that we're we're in earnest about our desire here for peace, and this is how you know, and this is how we do it. Well, um, that 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 is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. That, that, that's that's not the way you prevail in this death struggle over mm-hmm. Vietnam. I mean, yeah, not, you know, leave it aside for the time being the question of should you be there or should you not be there. If you intend to prevail there, uh, this is not how you – this is not how you go about it. I mean th- this is simply blood in the water for a shark in terms of the diplomatic language that you're using. All the more reason for us to press on from the standpoint of the north – because this is not full blown um, commitment, clearly. Yeah, and I think I think that's you know that that uh, the rhetoric is matched by the overall strategy, which is to or, or the strategy that seems to prevail, which ties in with what Will was saying about you know, doing it on the cheap and and which is to say, the, the strategy that seems to develop and that McNamara and his people seem to develop is to use the minimum force necessary to make the communists aware that we are serious hmm. and then immediately to follow that up with it. As soon as, as soon as we think we've got their attention, Hey, now we're ready to negotiate. Are you guys ready to negotiate? We're ready to negotiate. And, you know, and think about the way, think about the way wars have been fought and won throughout history up to that point, which was uh, maximum concentration of force to space, overwhelming force. You know, y- you beat your enemy down until he has no choice. I mean, think about the way the war ends in 1945, right? That's how that's how you win a war, which is to say overwhelming force until the other side says we've had enough. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you hear it raised sometimes, or, or I have in the context of discussions, conferences, and other places. Well, when I've talked about, well, sometimes, well, you know what, this isn't World War II, or so, you know, something along those lines. This isn't something of the scope of World War II. Well, it may not be something of the scope of World War II. I understand in terms of the numbers involved, it's not the scope of World War II. But if you're out there getting shot at, it's it, it it's it's your World War II, or it's whatever. Right. War you, okay, right. it's war, and you know, you're putting your life at peril. And what do you want? Well, of course you want maximum um, force mm-hmm. b- because you know at the end of the day that gives you the best chance of surviving, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, to sort of do this, uh, you know, through fits and starts, you know, gradual gradual escalation, um, it, it, it's not as though there were no warning signs about that. And it's, it's, it's really, again, very striking. Vietnam, I mean, 
there's no declaration of war in Vietnam. Okay, if you want to get people to understand this war as such and have clearly defined objectives, and you want you you want that kind of clarity for the people, and of course, obviously, we never achieve clarity for the American people on Vietnam. By and large, there's never clarity. I mean, I think even of Clark Clifford coming in once McNamara is, um, you know, yeah, he offers to resign right. to, or else be fired. Clark Clifford comes in, and, and what's his comment? I asked the most fundamental questions, the most basic kinds of questions, in every quarter that you would expect people to have some kinds of answers, and nobody had any answers about any of this, right? There's never any clarity. This is ha, compare this with sort of the stars and stripes. Uh, you know, we're going to war. We have a national objective. The people of this country needed to be made to understand. You know, they they need to understand what it is. There's no attempt to do that fundamentally. Wow. It's sort yeah. of a war, a kind of backdoor to war, as uh, you know, sometimes referred. But it also, I, mean, I think that reflects a larger cultural shift. And this is one of the the, the critical differences. This is something I've sort of struggled with over the past couple of years in terms of the, 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 the political thought, which is what on earth happened to progressive liberalism between 1945 and 1965? And what I mean mm. by that was with the old progressivism, you could fight and win major wars. We fought two of them uh, with, with, I mean, two major wars with progressivism, whatever else Whatever else you want to say about Franklin Roosevelt, and I have my criticisms of Franklin Roosevelt, there was no doubt in FDR's mind that we were the good guys, they were the bad guys, and they and the bad guys had to be destroyed. And that, so that there was a there was a moral clarity and a sense of purpose that existed in those two world wars. I mean, even with Wilson in the First World War, that um, progressivism, progressive liberalism loses loses its own sense of moral clarity or moral authority. They lose the sense that uh, liberalism loses the sense that we're the good guys. Right. I mean, mm. you, th you think about the new left in the 1960s, openly identifying with, with the country we're at war with. Right. Um, mm. You know, we, we lost the, the ability to, we, we lost the ability to fight and win a war, a sustained war, not a not a quick hit like the first Gulf War with with very few casualties, but but that went away somehow in the intervening generation, and I think that's very closely tied to changes in liberalism that happened in the post-war period. That's very interesting. I mean, yeah, you remember Woodrow Wilson was pretty hard nosed about about yeah. winning World War One. These I mean, people are autocrats and they need to be destroyed. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and and yeah. FDR is That's the right. same way. However confused yeah. he may have been about Stalin, he was absolutely clear that the Nazis and the Japanese imperialists and Italian fascists, those people are bad and we need right. to destroy them. And, and that's gone by the 1960. Either among the, 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 the sort of political activist class or the political class itself, that's, that's disappearing. You know, it's Chris, very interesting. I was, was going to say, just real, real briefly, Chris, if I could just, uh, you know, in terms yeah, of the, na the nature of the opponent in some sense, right? Um, if you look at who the battle is being waged against, so to speak, from an ideological standpoint, right? They, they, they say, you know, the Re Republicans never had such a good uh, friend in some sense as the Cold War, right? We need the Cold War. We need a Cold War as kind of a, a, a reason for being, not not maybe sole reason for being, but it certainly is helpful, right? And what what do Republicans do when the Cold War goes away, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, from an ideological standpoint, uh, you look at who you're battling in World War II, okay? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're allied to a communist power, 
right? right? We're battling fascists. I mean, we're battling mm-hmm. Mussolini, we're battling Hitler, we're battling this kind of fascist totalitarians. Uh, and, and the nature of the enemy, mm-hmm. at least from the standpoint of the ideological um, nature of the enemy, is very, very different. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, post World War II. Oh, that's that's a great point. I think yes. you just addressed in part Justin's point about too. I mean, the, the developments and the nature of warfare. I mean, that World War II is uh, mostly pre-nuclear as well, right? So, yeah. Cold War context, nuclear context. Sure. This is great. So we've almost come to the end of our time, and uh, there's so much more we could do with it. So it's it's hard to cover all of this in an yeah. hour and fifteen minutes. So we're kind of giving everybody a taste uh, of these things. Um, I want to end <clears throat> with, um, I guess. To again, very broad questions, but <clears throat> excuse me, maybe, maybe we can do it in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, to tie all of this together, what would you say the most significant long-lasting effect of LBJ has been on America, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy? We were just kind of talking about his impact on foreign policy, but domestically, in terms of foreign policy, where do we see the legacy most clearly of Johnson? And this this comes back to a question that uh, that Billy Gallagher actually posted um, at the beginning of our conversation in a sense. So anybody want to tackle those? Uh, <laughs> um, d- domestically, I, I, I would go back to, I think what I said at the outset, which is to say that the, uh, the, the expand, not just the expansion of government, but, uh, setting in motion the expansion of government in a way that, that it, uh, interferes with or trenches much more directly upon the lives of ordinary citizens. That is to say, the the regulatory state created by the New Deal mostly affected business owners, corporations, uh, and and, and people like that, whereas the the legislation of the 60s and 70s gets uh, uh, much more to interfering with the way ordinary people live their ordinary lives. Um, But but also... Uh, in, in terms of foreign policy, maybe serving as a bridge between the old progressive imperialism and the, the, maybe the new, kinder, gentler regime change imperialism of you know, maybe a George W. Bush, which is to say that that speech on Vietnam that that that, that we posted that that was great. I was rereading that this morning, and I had forgotten the extent to which you know, Johnson really wanted to remake Vietnam in our image. Mm. Oh yeah, you know that—that's what he wanted. He wanted a little—he wanted a little America, a little democracy, a little—and and, that's—I mean—that sounds like that sounds like uh, the mission creep of the Iraq War in a nutshell. We're gonna—we're we're gonna go from taking out Saddam to building democracy in this yeah. place with no, with no background or concept of, of democracy. Yeah. And also, by the way, Kevin, it reminds me a little bit of Woodrow Wilson's We Will Teach Them Good Government <laughs> with respect yeah. to the yeah. South American republics yeah. I will and te- Mexico. I will teach the, ele- the yeah. Mexicans to elect good men. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you know, we, 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 we're not afraid, right, to intervene in that respect. I would yeah. second what Kevin said with respect to the dom- domestic issue. I also see Johnson is kind of part and parcel, and in, 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 I'm well aware of the differences, I hope, I think, between Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. But I will say in terms of the the sort of the denouement of the presidency, sort of the, this idea of the imperial presidency and, and mm-hmm. a supremacy of Congress, which is forthcoming, I see what Johnson did in terms of his administration and that in conjunction with Nixon and Watergate and this massive increase, massive increase in cynicism and suspicion over government uh, and a very different approach, I think, at the popular level to how Americans understand, um, you know, their own government. Um, on the, on the, on the foreign policy side of it, um, 
uh, the, 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 for one thing, and of course I can't help but come at it a bit from the military standpoint, the military history standpoint is, is that you will wage war dramatically differently in, in, in different terms in many respects, not in all respects, but in many respects, you will have much more clarity of purpose. And, and could anybody have doubted it, say, in the first Gulf War, whether or not we had overwhelming force and a clearly stated objective – uh, you know, in the case of Saddam Hussein uh, in that war, uh, you know, again, leaving aside for the moment the issue of, you know, you go into Iraq, you don't go into Iraq, leaving that aside, there's no question about the clarity of the objective and the use of overwhelming force to achieve it, not, not to repeat that experience again. Yeah, if I can, I'm sorry, please, I'm jumping in no, again, but I just wanted to say one thing about uh, Will's point about cynicism, which I think is absolutely correct, but that, um, you know, that, that cynicism that we have for, for our government today, I think is born in large measure in the unrealistic promises that people like Lyndon Johnson make. I mean, Johnson's pledge is to transform the human condition through government programs. And when it turns out that doesn't work, people then start to get cynical about government. And we keep making, right, our politicians keep making those promises, those kinds of promises that LBJ made. And of course, it's impossible to deliver on them because it turns out that the human condition is somewhat more durable than Johnson might have liked. So. It, does, it does bring us somehow full circle back to the question over the founding because, again, you know, what can you, what, what can government do? You know, what, right. what, 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 uh, what are the right, what, what is it that it ultimately can secure? Equality before the law, mm-hmm. uh, equality of opportunity. Uh, guaranteed outcome, uh, you know. Uh, Guar- guaranteed happiness. Yeah. Uh, that's the great society, I think. Well, thank you, thank you very much. By, by the way, in your final answers there, you just touched on or answered about three or four other sort of lingering oh, questions that were out there about the about the even the scope and the ambition of the uh, the great society. Right? Uh, somebody had asked, "Is it just utopian? Is it possible? Is it overreach? You know, all of these questions." So. <laughs> So I want to thank you both again. This has been uh, extremely informative. Uh, I have learned a bunch. I've taken a bunch of notes, and I'm going to use that in the future. So thanks to you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our our participants for submitting some questions that generate some good and apparently from some of the comments a little controversial uh, Mm -hmm. conversation. That's always good. Controversy (laughs) is not a bad thing. Uh, So just just a reminder to everybody who's joining us that you will get an email with a link by which you can request a certificate. Participation. If you've enjoyed the conversation today, uh, consider taking an, uh, a graduate course online through uh, the Ashbrook Center, uh, through our uh, Master of Arts and uh, History and Government program. So, which you can find more about if, uh, by going again to teachingamericanhistory.org. So, uh, our final Saturday webinar will be May seventh. Our final seven, uh, Saturday seminar of this series will be May seventh, eleven o'clock Eastern Time, and this one will be on Ronald Reagan. The great communicator. I expect we'll probably pick up with a lot of themes we've been talking about here, and may just sort of segue nicely into our next, uh, webinar. But that uh, for that webinar, we'll be joined by Steve Hayward, who's a fellow at the Ashbrook Center, and Gregory Schneider of Emporia State University. And you can find the readings that we're recommending for that conversation already posted on tah.org. Hope to see you all then. Take care. Thank you for attending another TAH.org webinar. You can find out information about all of our upcoming and archived webinar programs at TAH.org slash webinars. Thanks again.